How might we create spaces in our school communities where everyone feels like they belong? Today on the podcast, I talk to Rosetta Lee, a professional outreach specialist and middle school educator at Seattle Girls School. I'm your host, Celeste Kirsch, and we are teaching tomorrow. Rosetta Lee is a force within the world of education. I was first introduced to her when she came to my school to talk about microaggressions and affinity groups, and I loved her vulnerable and hilarious presentation style. I so appreciated getting to sit down with Rosetta for this interview and to talk to her about these topics that I feel so passionately about and to hear her mic drop worthy wisdom firsthand. In this conversation, we talk about affinity groups and how to overcome some of the barriers that may exist to getting these brave spaces off the ground in your school. Rosetta offers so many practical tips and considerations for diversity, equity, and inclusion work that I wouldn't be surprised if we need to invite her to come back once you've had some time to digest and experiment with some of these ideas in your own school context. Enough intro already. Here is my talk with Rosetta Lee. Rosetta Lee, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. Thank you. Uh, It is such an honor to get to have you to myself for a little while to get to chat with you because I've seen you uh, present at conferences and you've come to my school before the Bishop Strong School. So it's a real delicious treat to get to just sit and ask you these questions. Um, Can you just start by explaining to everyone what you do with the Seattle Girls School? Because you have a really unique role at that school. Absolutely. I'm a school-based consultant uh, around diversity, equity, and inclusion. I always like to say an accidental consultant um, (laughs) because uh, I worked there for a good long time, about 13 years, as a sixth-grade science teacher. And um, the school has an anti-bias mission, so I I learned a lot about equity and inclusion, um, both for personal reasons and for application in the classroom. And when I went to conferences, I started to propose sessions for uh, topics that I thought uh, we could use talking about, but I didn't necessarily see those uh, workshops. And folks attended and started to invite me out to their schools. And what was uh, initially a handful of schools became now hundreds of schools a year. Mm-hmm. And so it, uh, my head of school in, uh, asked me to represent the school and do work with uh schools, nonprofits, uh, colleges, universities, um, et cetera. And so um, I didn't want to leave a school because um, I feel like if I'm going to ask teachers to really consider um, how and what they teach, I need to be part of a school setting where mm. I'm with my myself. And so I continue to be affiliated with Seattle Girls School. I would say uh, 90% of my work is actually external, though. Yeah, I was looking at your calendar on your website and you travel so much. You're just like at this school one week, at this school the other week. It must be so rewarding, but also so exhausting on your end. Yeah, you know, if uh, they ever invent uh, transporter technology, I (laughs) definitely sign up. (laughs) But I think it's such a smart way for the Seattle Girls School to be able to share uh, the work that they're doing with a larger audience. Like, I think that that's a really cool model of thinking about the, I was talking about this with, um, a teacher who taught at the Spence school in New York city and her title was director of outreach and public purpose. Mm. That idea that independent schools should have a larger purpose in the greater community. And I see that as kind of what you're doing on behalf of Seattle girls school, which is awesome. Absolutely. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, being affiliated with a school allows me to do reasonably priced work. And when I'm mm. uh, working with public schools or small PTAs that have little to no budget, I can just say, you know what, let's uh, take the money off the table, which is something yeah. that not consultants have the freedom to do. And then you get the security, I assume, of working for a school with a little bit more um, stability. So if you were just to do count, like consultant work on your own, it would be a totally different kind of game. Yeah, yeah. It, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. So um, I want to just hear a little bit about how you've seen equity work change over the course of your career, because mm-hmm. I, I think it's different in Canada. Most of the listeners to this podcast mm-hmm. will be from Canada. I see the work that American schools is so much further along than what's happening up north. Mm -hmm. Um, How have you seen this work change over your career? Yeah, uh, so uh, what I've seen the evolution happen, I think about uh, various words that get used and how they're uh, misunderstood sometimes, and I see that as an evolution of the work as well. So some schools are at the diversity level, right, which is... Mm -hmm demographics, numbers, uh, their, their conversation is more about how do we get people in the door? How do we get these numbers up, right? Yeah. Uh, and then inclusion uh, work is when uh, schools are thinking about, well, uh, we have, we're starting to have the numbers, but the experience, um, folks don't always feel like this is their home or this is their school. And so what are we doing to help people feel like they belong mm-hmm. and that we uh, and then equity work is equity is uh, that notion of um, uh, equality is treating everybody the same and equity is uh, treating everybody in a way that acknowledges the obstacles that some folks face that uh, others don't, mm-hmm. right? And it's not about equal distribution of attention and energy and resources. It's about this is the group that is having a disparate experience, so we need to work harder for this group. Mm-hmm. Um and so that's the equity level of work. Um, and then I would say um, cultural competency uh, sort of takes it to another level, which is uh, so far we've been doing work with the marginalized communities and making sure that they feel belong and that we support them. But the general population isn't learning anything about interacting across difference. So it's almost like, you know, the way I like to think about it is, uh, we have a square peg in a round hole, and we've been spending all of our energy sanding that square peg into a round hole. Mm-hmm. We haven't done anything to that hole <laughs> um, or the round pegs to like understand what square pegs are about, right? Uh, and so I like to think about those as uh, evolutions. And I think there are a small number of schools that are thinking social justice, which is that public purpose you were talking about. How do we equip young people? Um, to acknowledge it's not just our school. We're actually in the context and ecosystem of a whole nation and world that mm-hmm. has baked into the way we do things. And so how do we equip young people to challenge those and create a better world? Do you see any schools who kind of bypass that diversity inclusion point And let's say they are an independent school that is predominantly of the dominant group of power. So let's say like a lot of white affluent folk in that school. Do you see any of those schools starting this kind of journey at that further on place, such as, you know, cultural competency, like actually thinking about, hey, we want to become a more inclusive world, but maybe or a school, but maybe we can start it at a further on point. Or do you see most schools starting at that like beginner diversity stage? 
Um, I think there are schools uh, who intend to start at a later phase of cultural competency. And then what what the the challenge they encounter is unless uh, they actually intentionally go out into communities or create meaningful partnerships and relationships with diversity, it becomes an exercise in intellectual uh, sort of imaginings, right? Um, And so I think schools try and then they realize um, we can't just teach kids how to be culturally competent. They have to actually practice and mess up and ask questions and apologize and all those kind of things in order to like actually develop um, deeply understood and practice cultural competence. Yeah, what I'm hearing you say is that you actually have to be uncomfortable and you actually have to make some of those mistakes as a school in order to figure out how to be more evolved. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Mm -hmm. I like that. Um, I want to touch about this idea of cultural competency. Um, Mm -hmm. You wrote a really great article for Independent School Magazine called What's Missing from the Conversation, The Growth Mindset in Cultural Competency. And I loved it. Like you basically took, I'll link it in the show notes for people who haven't read it. You basically took Carol Dweck's growth mindset work and used that as a lens to understand cultural competency. Mm -hmm. Um, This is my issue with cultural competency, and I want to pick your brain on it. Yeah it's always sat in a weird place with me personally, because I feel like even just that title or that name of cultural competency suggests Mm -hmm. that you can be competent in a culture. Mm -hmm. I, as a white queer woman, I will never be competent in Mm -hmm. Islam. Like I just, I can be sensitive. I can Mm -hmm. know, you know, what it means for a student to fast at Ramadan, Mm -hmm. but I am not going to be competent in that culture. Mm -hmm. Um, I wonder a lot about a teacher about moving more towards an anti-oppressive lens rather than cultural competency. Do you see those two things as interchangeable or do you think schools need to grapple with cultural competency um, before they can think about anti-oppressive practices? Mm-hmm. Um, you, you bring up a really good point and this is a, a, a challenge that uh, social work uh, ran into the field of social work because they took on cultural competency and what happened was a bunch of social workers were like, I read a bunch about Latino communities and I'm serving Latino communities and now I know what to do. Yeah. And so they were actually like performing stereotypes and actually uh, perpetuating oppression except through a stereotype um, like a like an assertiveness around the fact that their knowledge is true mm-hmm. versus assumptions uh, that were fed to them. Um, and so the field actually uh, re, re-branded um, the work that they were doing to cultural humility, mm. right? So you're learning a bunch, but you have to remain humble. Yeah, right? that's a way different way of understanding it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so the way I think about it is, um, I think um, a lot of uh, folks use the term cultural competence, and I always want to look under the hood. Uh-huh. Uh, what do you mean by that, right? Yeah. Because there are some people who say cultural competence and they're like, oh, we read this book and this book and this book and so we're competent. And I'm like, ugh. Uh, and then there are folks who are like, we're, um, and we're uh, working in these ways and we know we'll actually never get there, but we're committed to continuing to move. Mm-hmm. Then I'm actually okay with that, right? Yeah. So I always, uh, for me, I, did, I think about cultural competencies right? Yeah. We're all in some ways and we're all incompetent in other ways. It's just that recognition and realization of what are your growth zones and continuing to work, right? Um, and I also like to think about it in terms of not are you there yet, but are you moving? 
Oh, I love that. That's so important, that distinction, I think. Because for me, um, folks are like, you've done this work and do you feel complete? I'm like, no, as soon as I say I'm complete, I will fall behind. Mm -hmm. And so as long as I'm moving, I can hold my head up high and know that um, I'm reaching towards something I'll never get there. Because the reality is um, demographic shifts, migration pattern shifts, a better understanding, scientific uh, advances, the way people understand themselves better. Like when I started teaching 25 years ago, like the the uh, gender non-binary and transgender community was not a part of the regular conversation of teaching and learning, mm-hmm. right? And yes, I did a bunch of, uh, you know, uh, identity work and anti-oppression work back then, but it's it's not relevant as much around gender identity anymore, mm-hmm. right? And so it's that idea of I need to constantly be paying attention to what is new, right? And I'm trying to keep up. And of course, young people move so much faster than I do. <laughs> so these days, I'm like, how do you identify? And what does that mean to you, right? Because there are folks who use terms that don't mean the same thing. I always mm-hmm. like to go beyond some folks like to find a perfect terminology and wordsmith it until it communicates as clearly as possible. My thing is, I don't care what words you use, but I do want to look under the hood and ask you what that means. I want to rebrand that too, is maybe cultural curiosity. Like if Mm -hmm. you're curious about other cultures, you're not Mm -hmm. making assumptions, you're asking questions, you're leading with a general wonderment about other people and their Mm -hmm. lived experiences. Mm-hmm. Um, do you think that schools are hesitant to use the terminology anti-oppression, though, because it's kind of charged and they don't want to look at the role that they may play in? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, because I think, uh, you know, one of the one of the challenges of uh, anti-oppression work and, you know, as a school that, you know, wanted to say we're an anti-bias school and folks were like, that sounds so negative. Uh-huh. I've heard that from other people. Yeah, like, why yeah, do you yeah, have to yeah. be anti something? Why yeah, can't you be pro absolutely. something? Totally. Uh-huh. And, um, you know, part of the reality is I think we have um, branded um, oppression as something that is highly intentional and morally weighted. Right? <sighs> yeah. And so if oppression exists, it's because there are bad people who want to do harm to other people. And so they intentionally created systems of oppression. Mm -hmm. And the idea of acknowledging that or even um, admitting collusion with that is is a cognitive dissonance that many individuals in schools cannot get to, right? Right. I not think, get to or are not willing to get to. That's a um, interesting. I think, I think initially it's a cannot because, you know, ultimately I think about psychology, right? Uh, when you run into a major moment of cognitive dissonance, right? There are many folks who that initial phase is denial, resistance, rejection, mm-hmm. right? And I, I don't think that's a choice for a lot of folks in that initial phase. But at some point when there's a, um, reaffirmation of the fact that the thing that you couldn't absorb in the first place is appearing in, in different forms over and over again. At some point, many folks um, sort of sit with that dis- dissonance and go, yeah, like, it, I feel a way about it, but I'm recognizing that feeling a way about it doesn't change anything, yeah. right? Yeah. Uh, 
So I think that's when folks go from a, the action being a rejection and denial to um, emotion regulation and engaging in the process. Whoa, that like makes me think that in order to really engage in this work, you need to have like a background of meditation, like actually like sort of like, yeah, a foundation of just being okay with discomfort and noticing what's coming up and sitting Mm -hmm. with that and then maybe thinking about action. Like Mm -hmm. that's really profound, Rosetta. Well, and that's why I really love engaging in research like uh, Brene Brown's research around shame, Mm. right? Um, and shame resilience, because we all have shame triggers, the, those things that make us feel not enough, right? And we experience cognitive dissonance, emotional distress, all that kind of stuff. But there are whole fields that let us know these are some things that you can do to manage that. Not get rid of it, but manage it mm-hmm. and actually behave in um, productive ways. And so for me, I delve into that research uh, because ultimately I want to not only teach people about uh, equity and inclusion and oppression, I want to help give them some tools around managing that emotion or psychological reaction when it comes up, when it comes up, not if it comes up. Yeah, when it- yeah. well, well said. Um, can you talk to everyone about what are affinity groups mm-hmm. and why they matter in our schools? Mm. So um, for me, I take a very specific definition of affinity groups that's used by National Association of Independent Schools and uh, the one that we use at my school as well. Uh, Just because you'll find affinity groups in professional spaces and they don't always operate the same way. Um, But affinity groups as uh, I and NAIS defines it is uh, a gathering of people who have a shared identity. Right. So whether it's a racial identity, a gender identity, a sexual orientation identity, a cultural identity, a religious identity, and folks who share an identity group come together to provide support for one another um, and talk about what it's like to be a member of that group in a world that has very normative messages about a singular group. Mm. Right. So let's say. Um, people of color in a society that values whiteness a lot more than any other racial group. It's about um, feminism or like uh, women power or girl power groups that takes a look at, hey, we live in a patriarchy. So what do, what does it mean to identify or express or live as a woman in this society? Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and so affinity groups oftentimes start from a um, the minoritized, marginalized, and sometimes literally numerical minority group. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, and so um, for me, um, uh, there is also a subset of affinity groups, which is members of the majoritized group who actually want to engage in anti-oppression work. Oh, so cool. About also men who want to get together with other men and talk about what it means to be a feminist man in this world. Because they are a minority, let's yeah. make sense or white people getting together uh, to do anti-racism work and not at the burden of people of color in their lives all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, or straight allies who want to uh, stand up in solidarity with queer folk. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so for me, ultimately, it's about this idea of shared identity. And what that allows you to do is there are some ways that you don't have to explain as much, right? Um, and, um, it's the safety and comfort, right? 
of being able to speak your truth without feeling like you have to justify it or explain it or that you will be really um, uh, treated with suspicion or scrutiny, right? Um, and then uh, for literal numerical minority groups, it's also like walking into a room and feeling like you uh, walk into a room where there is a mirror, literal or figurative, right? Which is an experience that many folks don't get in our schools. Yeah. So for me, in schools, the reality is there are many ways that the curriculum, the pedagogy, the assessment, um, the relational practices in environments where either the uh, student body and uh, the, especially the faculty, staff, and administration is uh, a dominant uh, majority identity, majoritized identity, and you're a member of a minority and a ma- minoritized group, um, then some many of our students um, feel like it's me. It's just me. I'm the only one going through this. I am alone. Nobody understands. And affinity groups offer that uh, opportunity to say, maybe I'm not making stuff up. Maybe I do need to speak up. Wait a minute, this is a shared experience. And if the school says uh, we want to support you, then maybe we need to speak up collectively to say this is how you can support us, mm-hmm. right? Um, and so for me, it, especially until we get to that place of, um, uh, you know, I, I when, when folks are like, um, you know, why do you want affinity groups? I'm like, I wish I, we didn't need them to yeah. tell you that, right? Um, and I want, I'm working toward a world where we don't need them. But in the meantime, um, I think about both, uh, I'm working on shutting off the faucet that's causing the leak. But in the meantime, this is a great mop <laughs> to yeah. help it the, the spill, right? Um, that's a perfect way of explaining it. I'm, I've only ever experienced um, an affinity group myself once when I was at the Klingenstein Summer Institute and we did them uh, sort of like a self-directed affinity group model, actually twice. And then when you came to our school, we did like a small micro affinity group session. Um, And I've been actively trying to start a conversation around affinity groups and many people at my school are very supportive and really wanting it to get off the ground. Um, But the barriers to starting Mm -hmm. them are real. Like there's a lot of reasons why they mm-hmm. don't happen. Mm-hmm. And you've done a lot of writing. And I think even one of your sessions at POCC, the People of Color Conference, was overcoming barriers to affinity mm-hmm. groups. Yeah. Um, three barriers that, mm-hmm. you know, I think exist in my context, but I think that they're pretty universal. I'm wondering if you can discuss some ways that people might have gotten mm-hmm. around those in your work, because you yeah. see a lot of different schools and mm-hmm. know what works in different contexts. So yeah. let's say you have a population that could really use an affinity group, but you don't have any adults that reflect that population. Mm-hmm. Um, I am a fan of um, like creative problem solving, right? So one is, are there folks in the parent population or the greater community that, can, that we can um, support and train to fold into the school as a auxiliary adult support? Right. Um, And so when my school had a Latina Alliance uh, affinity, but we didn't have um, somebody who represented that group, we had a parent come in. Our affinity groups meet uh, once a month. And so she came in once a month 
um, and we supported her around uh, getting to know the kids a little bit better, um, some supplies, like, do you need anything, uh, uh, and touching base with her about um, if, if there's anything that comes up in conversation that you feel like the school needs to know to better serve those kids, please let us know, right? Mm. Um, I've also had situations where um, it's somebody within the school um, that doesn't identify that way, but they're very explicit about what they do and what they can't do. Hmm. And for example, when I supported an affinity group where um, I was not a member of that group, the, the way I framed it was this. Um, I am uh, the affinity group's facilitator, and here's my role. My role is to make sure that you have a comfortable and safe and affirming space and that um, I am um, trying to make sure that uh, I help us through moments of conflict or emotion or um, strong dissonance, right? Uh, and I'm here to be an adult conduit and advocate so that if you identify things that I am going to stand with you and for you as a champion among the adults. Mm. What I'm not an expert in is what it's like to be a member of this group, what it's like to grow up as a member of this group, what are the strategies to um, remain strong and resilient and negotiate some of those things. I can read about it, I can bring in um, guest speakers, I can um, you know, uh, find resources, but ultimately I'm not gonna pretend that I am an expert in that. Right. Yeah. And so when I'm really explicit like that, the kids know um, to a certain degree, I become a um, a fly on the wall that they know they can tap yeah. rather than somebody who's like facil leading the discussion. Mm -hmm. Right. And I think as long as adults are very clear on what their role is and not pretend to understand or uh, or uh, be a role model in those ways or like make it about them, I think it's perfectly possible to have somebody not within a group facilitate that group. Amazing. Uh, how would you address the idea of parents resisting, reminding their children about their mm. possible marginalized status? Yeah, uh, and so, uh, I, first of all, um, I, I think about uh, the fact that, you know, oftentimes um, at my school is in middle school and um, many affinity groups have started at the high school level. By then, kids know already. Right? <laughs> oh, it's not a secret. Um, mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I, I think about it a few ways. One, a, a well-run affinity group should actually be more of a pos positive and affirming space than a look how, look how challenging it is to be a member of a marginalized group, right? Um, so in terms of the greater balance, it needs to be an affirming space. And part of the, um, the motivation I find around uh, affinity groups is the notion of identity socialization. And this actually shows up in parenting research. Um, April Harris-Britt does a lot of work around how do parents teach their kids about what it means to be a member of a certain social group, mm -hmm. right? And parents of marginalized identities do a lot more intentional identity socialization than parents of uh, majoritized identities. Um, and so, for example, and the identity socialization comes in two forms. One is identity pride, 
right? Mm -hmm. Which is, this is our people, our culture, our history. These are the role models who have contributed to society that come from our background. This is the history and legacy of our people, the challenges we've overcome and we've stood strong. You're a part of that history, culture, um, group, legacy, and you should be proud to be a member of this group. Mm -hmm. And that, that pride socialization, you need to do in abundance. And um, as long as it never leaks over into identity chauvinism, like we're better than everybody else, pride messages are actually really good for kids. Um, always, 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 okay? Um, and the positive outcomes are like healthy, um, healthy uh, psyches, healthy bodies, um, strong academics, you name it. Like I can't find anything wrong with pride <laughs> socialization, right? Um, and then there is protective socialization, which is in this world, as a member of this group, you may experience some things, mm -hmm. right? And this is how I need you to negotiate or protect yourself. And so this is why like Jewish families will teach their children about the Holocaust and what happens when religious intolerance goes unchecked. And your, your, our people are, have survived this massive, um, attack on our, our people and we need to remember that and be vigilant and you know um, uh, protect our community this is why parents of girls who are working nighttime jobs and driving themselves home you bet they will have a conversation about park your car close to the door in a brightly lit area and when you go from the door to the car hold put a finger on the mace hold your keys a certain way um, be alert make a beeline to the car get into the car, lock the door, and then you can like let your attention drift. But you bet there's like coaching around that. Hmm. This is why black communities do driving while black classes, right? This is how I need you to behave when you get pulled over, not if you get pulled over, but when you get pulled over so that you're more likely to survive that encounter, okay? Now, protective socialization, this is a tricky one because it turns out you need to do some. You need to do some. Because when, sadly in this world, it's still a when, not if, when um, young people encounter bias, prejudice, bigotry, oppression, if they've never been given a heads up, um, often they experience a moment, uh, like moments of, what did I do? What's mm. wrong with me? Uh, what's, like, what, why, is this my fault? Like all those things. And without sort of heads up around that, uh, there's a lot of self-doubt, um, depression, anxiety. And, um, and for a lot of young people, they actually um, build up a resentment toward the adults in, our, in their lives. Like, I thought you loved me and you were going to prepare me for the world, but you never told me this was going to happen, right? Mm. And we know this from research around transracial adoptees because adoption agencies used to tell white parents who adopted children of color, don't talk about race, don't bring up race, just love them like your own and you'll be a family. And so parents didn't. And the adults, uh, people of color who were raised by white folks who never had conversations about race, they said that was not helpful. I needed to know what was going on. And my parents always dismissed those feelings that I had or told me to like ignore it, but that wasn't helpful, right? Mm. Uh, and so we know we need to do some, but here's the tricky thing. If you do too much, if you do too much, then young people start to get a sense of this world is so hostile and dangerous toward my people that there's nothing I can do to survive, thrive, 
um, be successful anything, right? And so uh, a sense of fatalism and setting low expectations for themselves, which of course becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy, um, happens as well, right? Um, and so this is the, the one you, where you have to do it with balance, which is, you know, the way I, I like to frame it with um, the young people that I support is this. Um, I wish I could promise you a world where this will never happen, right? And in, in, in an ideal world, you will never encounter this. But I, I can't promise you that. So for me to love you and care for you and support you is to say, if this shows up in your life, this is what's going on. This is where it's coming from. It's not your fault. You didn't do anything and it's not right. And here are some ways that you can handle that situation and you get to choose how you want to handle that situation so that you get what you need or want and you stay safe. Well, I feel like that's a good parenting tip for me as I have a son with another woman. So we have, uh, you know, that minority status right Absolutely. there. And I we, we've talked a lot about like the, just our family structure with him. He's two. So like mm-hmm. he doesn't understand it completely yet. But that is a really good thing for me to remember just in terms of how I socialize him around the world. And Absolute. when people make homophobic comments, this is okay. how, this is where it's coming from and this is what it cool. means. Yeah. I'm imagining a teacher who's listening to this conversation right now mm-hmm. and they really want to do this work. Like they really yeah. want to make a change. Mm-hmm. Um, but they're working in a school with mm-hmm. perhaps a community that's not quite as evolved as you are mm-hmm. or as they want to be. Um, what suggestions do you have for teachers wanting to do this work on their classrooms and, you know, wanting to get more people on board? Yeah, yeah. Um, I think about it this way. Um, you know, first, firstly, um, the great thing about uh, culturally competent teaching and learning is that it's just good teaching. Um, so we're talking about curriculum that is relevant and um uh, re- like relatable and um, affirming for all children in the room, right? We're talking about uh, the kind of assessment where we don't give unfair advantage to some kids or that we don't uh, put in unfair obstacles to other kids. We're talking about um, doing group work where uh, you pay attention to those dynamics of power and influence. Um, Like there's nothing about culturally competent teaching that just isn't plain good teaching, Mm -hmm. right? Um, And so ultimately I think, um, uh, I think uh, part of it is um, helping folks realize that you're not trying to upend the world. Uh, What you're trying to do is do the great things you do more of the time for more people. Right. Which is something I hope everyone can get on board with. Mm -hmm. Right. And so if you can um, really frame it in that way, which is um, we're just trying to be a better school, better teachers, a better environment for all people. And who doesn't want that? Right. Mm. Um, The second thing is pay attention to the growth zone of your school, Uh, because I think there are folks who get lit up and want to do a lot of work. And um they don't pay attention to where the school is and they've, they've gone to stage seven and they want the school to be at stage seven. Um, but you know, I think about it in terms of, um, uh, you know, learning research. Like when I have a young person, 
I need to find out what's their comfort zone and try not to teach within that because then they're encountering information they already know. Mm -hmm. I'm not pushing or challenging them. And a lot of kids will get bored and like goof off and like straight, right? Um, But I don't want to put them in the panic zone where I try to introduce too much too fast so that they actually shut down and they can't absorb and learn and grow. Um, Like a limbic system gets triggered, right? So I need to find that growth zone where they're safe but uncomfortable. And I like to think about schools have zones of proximal development as well, right? Um, Some schools like to stay in the comfort zone. They're like, oh, we're the first school to be racially integrated in our region. I'm like, that's great. And that was 100 years ago, right? (laughs) So what has happened since then? So we don't want to stay in the comfort zone. I know that there are schools that do great things. Like, Some schools are like, we're such a kind and loving school and the teachers really genuinely care about the kids. I'm like, that is awesome. That is a great foundation. But you can't stay there forever Mm -hmm. because people with good intentions, sometimes without the knowledge, impact in negative ways, right? And so we have to move. But you don't want to be like, the school is at the diversity level and you want to move it to social justice level this year, (sighs) but they're going to flip out, right? And... They, they express that flip out in terms of resistance and denial and rejection. And I find that the passionate teacher gets exited out of the community. And actually, the school then um, has, there's, there needs to be a trust rebuilt within totally. that community to work ever again. Yeah, and when your guard takes, goes up or when your back gets up, it takes a lot longer to get yeah. where you even were before. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I see this sometimes when, uh, teachers who, uh, like teachers doing like serious, um, uh, uh, in-depth and hard, hard stuff around privilege without having done diversity, inclusion, equity, Mm. (laughs) right? Um, because privilege is one of those things where, uh, especially in a, um, in, in a uh, culture that uh, stresses meritocracy and everybody's starting off at the same place, if you don't explain some of the backgrounds and context, then it feels like you're accusing folks of um, oppressing others and or having gotten there um, through your identity and, and the, the unearned advantages of your identity rather than any hard work on your own. And so you get a lot of resistance. And my thing is, when you do build up and contextual work, it's not as emotionally laden. Like, of course I have privileges, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but I, you know, and so I think about that, like, zone of proximal development and being intentional. And at the same time, like, don't apologize because you want to move, move fast. I, I like to think about uh, the institutional work that I do doesn't have to inform the personal work that I do. Hmm. Yeah. And so I will, you know, I, I relate it to, to math, for example, you know, and young people who are really lit up, right, and about social justice work. They go to a, a student diversity leadership conference and they come back, like, wanting to, you know, do the privilege walk and, like, you know, <laughs> um, change, uh, change into an anti-racist lens or whatever. I'm always like, okay, so you love math. You've always loved math. And you really get excited about math and you went to a conference among other math geeks and you talked like theoretical linear algebra all weekend long. 
And then you're coming back to people who are adding, subtracting, and multiplying and saying, check out the theoretical linear algebra. People are going to be, people are going to feel stupid. They're going to feel like, I don't know what you're talking about. They're, you're making stuff up. That makes no sense. All kinds of things. So I'm like, you need to find out what's the next step in the evolution toward, you know, theoretical linear algebra. That's now, so good. Definitely check out other spaces where you can riff with other math geeks, right? But don't expect your classmates to get there with you today. Yeah. It's the 1% better philosophy. Just like, just try to get your mm -hmm. whole school, your whole community to be 1% better and slowly, slowly big mm -hmm. change happens. I love that. Absolutely. Okay, so we're coming to the end of our conversation. Mm -hmm. And because we're great teachers, we are going to do a ticket out the door, which is <laughs> our way to send people off into the universe from this mm -hmm. podcast. So it's mm -hmm. a series of rapid fire questions, and you cannot prepare for them. Uh, <laughs> but they just help people get to know who you are as a person a little bit better. Sure. Um, are you up for it? Yeah, why not? <laughs> All right, here we go. What is your favorite book to read to young people? Oh, to young people? Oh my goodness. Um, gosh. Um, honestly, I, I don't know that I have a favorite. I, I always like to find out what they're interested in hmm. and then try to find something that's interesting to them. Right. So my nephew, who's a reluctant reader, um, love the Harry Potter series. So I read him the first chapter of Percy Jackson to just get him hooked. Yeah. Right? yeah. <laughs> and so, um, I, I, when it comes to young people, I like to find out more about them and let them guide what I read to them so that they um, spark up with the joy of reading. I love that answer. What's the best gift you've ever received as a teacher? Uh, I think the best gift I've received as a teacher is uh, um, the, the stuff that I find out in end of year surveys uh, where I ask them, can you help me be a better teacher for next year's class? Is there something I should know? And um, students have, with generosity, and these are middle schoolers, so they could have been <laughs> judgmental, but with generosity have given me heads up about things, right? Yeah. And so uh, it could be something as silly as at 1030 in the morning, you get hangry. So please snack. <laughs> <laughs> And, um, you know, uh, another one was uh, a student said, I think people sometimes get scared to answer questions in the big group because when you're listening and you're thinking really hard, you're, you start to make this facial expression that actually makes you look angry. Whoa. I know you're not angry, but it kind of looks that way. And so I think people get scared and don't answer in class. Wow. And that was a mystery I was trying to unpack forever. Because I can't see my face, I didn't know that that was going on. Oh, that's so kind and generous to offer that. That's really yeah. cool. Good gift. Uh, what is your favorite North American airport? <laughs> <laughs> wow. Um, let's see. Favorite North American airport. That is funny. Um, let's see. I think I like... Um, um, I. <laughs> Honestly, I like the San Francisco airport because the food court has so many Asian food. Ah, so good. <laughs> yeah. If you weren't an educator, what would you be doing for a living? Uh, I would either be uh, continuing to follow my passion in professional theater. Actually, became before I became a, a science teacher, I was working as a stage manager 
uh, in uh, regional theaters. Oh, and so, so great. I would do that again. I just love an environment where people of diverse talents come together to make one show awesome. Oh. Uh, it's like the way I feel like the world should work. Mm. And um, I, I, I'm, I, you know, I like uh, providing firm guides and structures and timelines and things like that for creative people to be their best, right? And I feel like that's what middle school teaching is. I just set <laughs> firm boundaries, and within there, you can be creative and joyful, right? Um, or I'd be a firefighter. I don't know. There's something about <laughs> that that's always drawn. Like there's the sense of like I'm strong and I like to help people and um, uh, I like to play with fire. So I figure putting out fires, you know. So, but that I think that might be going out of my reach because I'm like 44 now. <laughs> <laughs> I think you're doing a great job being an educator, so you don't have to jump ship anytime soon. Uh, who is your favorite edu celebrity? My favorite edu celebrity is, um, uh, let's see, uh, Brittany Packnett. Mm. Uh, and so she is the executive director, I, I, I may be getting the title wrong, um, of um, Teach for America. And she's really worked to change Teach for, Teach for America uh, from a model that uh, stereotypically places well-off recent college grad white uh, folks into uh, communities of color and in not so uh, culturally competent way, <laughs> um, come in, try to do stuff and then take off into a model where um, the, the core is like 50% people of color and she's doing intentional work around equity and cultural competence as a core part of their training program, yeah. which... I really admire because I know that 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 program will continue to be leveraged by high need under resourced communities. And so the fact that she's bringing that in is really important. And um, she also has an active life as an activist. Mm. Um, and so being a, a, a vocal champion and leader uh, within um, the the Ferguson Commission, Black Lives Matter, um, just really there's. Um, there's a uh, passion and living, living and walking your talk uh, that, uh, and and she withstands the kind of trolling and um, and uh, undermining and threat uh, that very few people have the strength to withstand. And so, and she's like, you know, um, I want to say she's in her twenties, maybe what? early. I know. Wow. And and so I I think about I think about her a lot when I uh, have to make a unpopular choice or have to mm -hmm. say something that will not be received well. I try to channel her and speak truth to power. That's great. As a Canadian, I don't know um, I don't know her very well, so I'm definitely going to be starting to follow her on Twitter. That's a good awesome. good suggestion. <laughs> What's the first thing you do when you wake up in the morning? Uh, I, uh, play Candy Crush and drink a lot of coffee. <laughs> <laughs> What's the first thing you do when you come home at the end of the day? <laughs> I play a lot of Candy Crush <laughs> and listen to audiobooks. <laughs> Excellent. And then our final question, what do you think is the future of learning? Um, I think the future of learning, if, if we really embrace it, is, um, where young people uh, are 
shaping uh, the what they want to learn, and we are facilitating that learning by putting resources before them and giving them coaching around a skill that they need to build. Um, but ultimately, I think about the current educational system is uh, all about driving kids toward college and then finding a major and entering a career. Um, I, I think it's important to acknowledge the fact that um, that we're in a world where we're trying to prepare young people for fields that don't even exist. Mm -hmm. And that uh, young people these days will not change jobs two or three times, they'll be changing careers two or three times. So I think the future of education is really building in grit, creativity, resilience, um, uh, self-driven academic and um, personal mindsets uh, and learning how to serve the greater good. I mean, I think I think if we can do that, then they can be prepared for anything that the world throws at them. Oh, those are perfect words to end on, Rosetta. You are such a busy woman and you have such a full schedule, so it means so much that you took the time to come and chat with us today. Oh, thank you so much for the invitation. It was such a delight to get to talk to Rosetta today. You know how I ask almost everyone at the end of the show who their favorite edu celebrity is? Well, Rosetta is definitely one of mine. I think that this might be one of the best parts about creating this podcast, having the permission to have one-on-one -on -one conversations with people that I truly admire. So thank you, Rosetta, for your honesty, for your vulnerability, and for everything that you shared with us today. If you were touched or inspired by something that you heard, please share this podcast with someone that you think would like it. That is the best way that we can grow and get this show into the hearts and ears of more teachers. That's all the time we have for today, folks. Keep looking under that hood. And remember, we are teaching tomorrow.